0: Hi, it's Wednesday afternoon, and I am really, as always, I'm like a deceit, you know, almost my And and uh, so I'm going to try to knock this off, as I always say, this is a very busy week, um, right now I have a lecture for Saturday night, and I got to organize a new college midterm, and I'm also writing up uh, for Purim, Uh a director, I always write a little Coupleistic thing for him every year when I have my party. Uh, and so that is actually very time consuming. I always try to make see him every year in McGillow, Old custom of mine. And um, <clears throat> anyway, let me get down to business. Today's uh, uh, podcast is sponsored by the Freeman family, Norm Freeman's uh, kids. Uh, I mentioned last week we at the Lavallee and everything. Uh, very good friend of all of us. And uh, especially, this is son Morris is doing it. Uh, so, as I say, we're always welcoming people to sponsor these podcasts. Helps me push through these things and cut out, carve out the time necessary to do it. And I got a very nice little note from Ronnie in uh, in Detroit, I guess. So, as a shout out to him. And we're always looking for sponsors and for people. Somebody was nice stuff to... I might end up doing a SIR in Florida, in, a, in the beach somewhere. I'll let you know if that happens. And uh, I am doing a, if you're in, I don't think, those of you who are in Baltimore, let's put it this way, in the Baltimore area, I always have every year at my house, it's going to be my show website, uh, from 145 to 345, that's when I do my porn, So everybody's more than welcome, we have a minute at 145 because it's clock change this year. If has any further information, you'll get in touch with me. Usually, a good time is had by all. Uh, this is a funny week because they have all these different things to do. And my son from Israel called me up and he said his rabbi wants him to get a rapid vital for him to give one for him. Time, time, time. All you need is, a, is a, an extra hundred hours. This week, uh, I asked Ariel, as I always do, to send me the names whose yards it is, I got to tell you, I didn't like it, you know, there's one name after another, there was nothing I felt I could sink my teeth into, it's all psychological, and it's like a divining rod, if I hear a name, or see a name that sounds like ding, 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 so I do it, and nothing really registered with me, and I was almost going to say I'm not going to do anything this week, but then I noticed uh, on myself a weird datum, a weird uh, unusual, uh, what should I say, uh, historical fact, and that drew my attention, and I'll tell you what it has to do with the Marm Rottenberg. So I'm not going to do a whole study now on the famous Marm Rottenberg, but I'm going to speak of him a little bit, and then concentrate on this datum which took place this past week. For <clears throat> those who know, what I'm talking about the Maim Rottenberg. Mayor Rottenberg was a big Roshonim in Germany in the 1200s. Going back to the 13th century now. I was spending a lot of time in the modern times. Now you're in the Middle Ages. And Marm Rottenberg's legendary figure. <coughs> excuse me, from the area that I've been speaking about from time to time, the Rhineland, the cities on the Rhine. He's from Worms, you know, way back when, in the 1200s, when this was a Hasidic community, even though it suffered in the Crusades. And there's somebody saturated, as you would imagine, with the old Yakisha thing from a thousand years ago, and even I would even say the Hasidic tradition of Hasidic Ashkenaz, although he disagrees with them in a lot of things. And somebody's a big learner. And his father, we don't do too much with has been the Cheshulah guy. And um, he went as a young man to study in the Iker Mokram Torah of Ashkenaz, Europe. Am I talking about Lakewood? Am I talking about Punevish? Am I talking about, you know, this place or that place, tells? No, I'm talking about Paris. <laughs> Paris. There was a time in the 13th century when the main headquarters of the Tosavist activity, you no, know, it was a place in Ashkenaz where they're studying the Gemara with the greatest depth and intensity, wasn't a stupid Paris. I might end up I have a, I've been talking from time to time about a possible trip I'm planning. The next trip, if it ever works out, would start in Frankfurt and go through Paris and end up in Omaha Beach. That's when I speak from time to time. And if I ever end up doing it <laughs> with a group, I would go to the place where um Rebecca Paris and these other guys held their big yeshibas once upon a time, you wouldn't imagine it. And uh so he's born, I think around twelve twenty, if I remember correctly. Uh, the mayor of Ottenburg, and, uh, you know, he lived all through the 1200s, as we shall see. Uh you know, I'm looking now, it's 1215, born in 1215. So that means that he's in, in the 1230s, or thereabouts, when he goes to Paris to in the Yeshiva there. This is the wrong time to be there, because in the 1230s, an ex-Yeshiva guy, who must have been kicked out or something, a Nicholas Donan, uh, and felt that he was mistreated by the foreign community took revenge by converting to Christianity and telling all kinds of things against the Gemara to the Catholic Church. It's a long story, but by the time it's all finished, the Rosh Hashim was called in to be interrogated by the, uh, by the Church. You know, they asked him, is it true that Jesus is distant in the Talmud? He said, "What's well, a different Jesus. Yeshua? it's a different Yeshua." They said, both. He said, no, it's a different guy. If you look at the times, which, by the way, he's not wrong. You know, uh, if you look at the times, it's the stories about Yeshua and, for example, Shubh and Papya which is uh, like 100 B.C. You hear what I said? B.C.? B.C.? You know? It's the wrong guy. They said, we don't believe it's two guys named Yeshu. And you can look this up, by the way. The Vikuach, or Vichel of Paris, which is not a Vikuach at all. It's just an interrogation. Uh, it's, it's famous. It's been published. It's online, I'm, without doubt. I'm sure in the Ots of Vikuachim, if you look it up, uh, by Eisenstein. And it's even in English, by that wonderful book by Macoby called Judaism on Trial. You can see the church version and the Jewish version. And he said, you think there's no two issues? Aren't you King Louis the Ninth? are a bunch of Louis. But by the time the whole process is over, sparing all the details, they burned all the Gemars. They burned all this farm, actually, the Catholic Church, the French government, in 1244, they say. And they say. And that was the end of learning over there. Uh, because, listen, you could have the whole lake, if you if you burned the books... <laughs> and there's no internet or anything like, you know, there's literally no way to get at a text, uh, then you need literally a Vilna Gong. you know, you need an Vadi Yosef. Walk around with the whole thing memorized. Ain't too many people like that. So you might say that Ramea Rottenberg studied in uh, the Yeshiva in Paris in his gla- last glorious years before the whole thing crashed, or was brought to crashing. And that's the famous poem that he wrote when they burned all the gnomers that we recite in the Kinos. As everybody knows, on Tishwab, Shali Roof of Eish. Which itself is a knockoff of the Yehuda Leib's poem, which is written a hundred years before that. Uh, what's it called? Get it? and this is shali through Feish. So, without spending time on that, that's who Mayor Rottenberg is, and uh, that yeshiva experience didn't pan out, you might say. And He went back to Germany, and there, he had already come. He was a big tom He became a very chasid rabbi. I would say the leading rabbi in Germany in the twelve hundreds. And, you know, all the smart guys and smart boys married and otherwise came and flocked him, And he had money. Maybe he married a rich girl, maybe his father had money. I don't know what it was, but uh, he had money. Because if you look in his writings, and there are many writings, the, the Shalos and Shubhas and Marm Rottenberg, besides his other writings, are very fascinating as a historical source. I don't have time in today's podcast to go into that. Uh, and there's a nice new edition, you know, by, I think, Mokinu Shalai, my boy, which is a wonderful edition of the, uh, of the response of the Shubhas of Mar Rottenberg. There was a guy in Y.U. Agus years ago, a professor wrote a whole book on this subject. Anyhow, he becomes a big rabbi. But then, when he's about, uh, let's see now, in 1280, so in his 60s, so it comes to the thing he's most famous for among non-Talmide Chachameh. And Mayor Rottenberg has entered the Jewish popular imagination because he was arrested and put in jail and wouldn't let himself be ransomed. I bet you most of you have heard about that, right? That, um, but the background is what I want to call your attention to, which, which is fascinating. In the 1280s it was, okay? So if he's born in 1215, that means he's in his 60s at least, at least, okay? And he lived in Germany, which at that time was called the Holy Roman Empire, which was a whole collection of different states. And believe me, if you know the history of 13th century Germany, especially after the death of the Emperor Frederick II uh, Holmstaufen, it was a chaos, and everybody's fighting everybody, And the Jews got a duck, um, because they're just, uh, you know, uh, passive, they're not uh, players, they're collateral damage. When one duke is fighting a count and a prince is fighting a baron, you know, the Jews might be in the way. Now, um, so it was tough being Jewish in in the 1200s. Even though Martin Rottenberg was a big deal, let me tell you something, he had told me like the Mordechai and the Hagos Maimony, and you know, a whole bunch of people like that. I mean, he was a, a big Rishon, big Rishon. Although, I want to tell you something, even though he's the biggest rabbi in Ashkenaz, he sent Shilas to the Rajbo. If you look in Chubas the Raj, I've seen it. If you look at Chubas, who's a contemporary of his, the Marm Rottenberg was in the Germany, in the Rhineland area, and the Raj was in Barcelona. So one's Ashkenazi, so one's Fari, obviously. And the Ashkenazi guy is, is sending Shilas, even though he himself is a big writer of Chubas, to, uh, to Barcelona. It's just interesting. Now, the story famously is, then in the 1280s, Mayor Rottenberg tried to leave Germany. And he got out of Germany and he was in Italy. And there he was fingered by another Mashumid who said he's trying to run away from Germany. And he was then arrested by the local uh, baron. There's a whole story to it. But some of these stories are legendary knowledge. And the bottom line is he was arrested and thrown into this uh, castle and this castle and ends up in Alsace in Entesheim. Holtzsheim, the French call it. And uh, the Holy Roman Emperor at that time was Rudolf of Habsburg, the founder of the Habsburg dynasty. Rudolf I, who was a real chalera. He spent his whole life fighting other barons and always trying to grab land and all this kind of stuff, make sure his kids get stuff everybody else doesn't have. And he was pretty successful because he was in the 1200s and the Habsburgs ended up ruling a lot of Germany until 1918, as you know, down to Franz Josef. So uh, he was a son of a gun. Now, here is the point I wanted to share with you, because I really want to try today not to make this very long. Uh, what was wrong with trying to leave Germany? The emperor had him imprisoned on charges of leaving the country, like Russia did with the with the refuseniks. And uh, uh, what do you called? The famous story is that the Jewish community was willing to raise all the money, like Ivanhoe, you know, to raise a lot of money to ransom him out. The uh, story is. Or let me put it this way, the Mahershal, who lived 300 years later, says that he his misery is that the Maram wouldn't let himself be ransomed, uh, because you're not supposed to ransom. The Maram says, you know, too you know, too much money, because you're in, you will encourage the guy to go and do it again. And as a result, he spent the rest of his life in that dungeon, or that's the wrong word to use, because he was not in the dungeon. He spent the rest of his life in that castle, as a prisoner of the castle. And that's where he died and he was buried there. And that's where he died. That's how the story goes, um, if that marshal is correct. And uh, the marshal, by the way, is very astonished by the story, he says, if it's, if it's true. I repeat, if it's true, he says. Because, uh, you know, he was Galal no question about that. And so how could he uh, justify the Bittl Torah, that's the language in the marshal, that his absence caused by being in jail. Why didn't he say that any sum of money, which the Jews were willing to pay to the Kaiser, to the Emperor, would be worth it, said the Maram, the great rabbi of the time, the biggest Talmud Chochem, the Das Torah of the, of the generation, in Ashkenaz, should be released, sort of like the Lababa Shrebi got out, you know, that kind of thing, and be able to share his learning and his Chachmah and all that stuff with the uh, fellow Jews. Uh, you know, we say totally Torah towards speaking alpha it was up, new so, so how come you went we'll not because it was up. So I want to repeat, this story is very, very well known, but doesn't mean it's true. And the Marshal, is the Gasna Kasha. Now maybe the Maram was like that. It's quite possible that maybe he was like that. He had a very, very strong character, but it was a matter of principle and he was just a hero, you'd say. Uh his his main Tamlin was the Rush, Rebeen Usher, and he hit the road. Uh, as, as a result, the imprisonment of the Maram, the Rush made his business that he did escape from Germany, ran away to Spain. And the Rajba, who, remember, was a friend and a correspondent of his rabbi, of the Maram Rottenberg, arranged that the Rush should get a, a Stella, as we say today, as the Rabbi in Toledo, Toledo in central Spain, and that's where the Rush spent the rest of his life. And the Rush and his children who were after him because his family succeeded him. For example, his son was the tour. And after the tour was the next generation, after the tour was the next generation. So uh, the family and the, and the Mesora of the Rush uh, grew and grew in central Spain. And Ad Kedekach, uh, that, you know, even in 1492, when many Jews left, they took with them certain Ashkenazi customs. These are Sephardic Jews from central Spain who took Ashkenazi customs. The main one that comes to mind is that they know Echidnius. If you know, there are some Sephardim, some, I said like in Morocco, a place like that, that their minhag, even though they're Sfardin, there's no kidneys, And that clearly is from the influence of the Rosh, who was a yaki and brought into Ashkenaz Uh, humrah, uh you know, and, and, and because of his charisma, his Talmidim, Sfardish Talmidim, kept up that minhag. Really, it's the minhag of the Marm-Rottenberg. What I'm trying to say is that the Marm-Rottenberg unexpectedly lives on in Sfard land, because of his student, the Rush, who ended up being the big rabbi, the big, big, big rabbi in Central Spain. But to go back to the Mount you know, why was he arrested for trying to leave the country? Is this the Soviet Union? Here you see, this is what I wanted to spend a few minutes describing to you, because it's just, to my mind, very fascinating. Jews in the Middle Ages, and even ancient times, had a funny situation when they lived in gaisha countries. What exactly is their status? What is their status? Um... Are they citizens? No, you're not citizens because if you're Jewish, you're a foreigner living in the land. Ger be'er eretz That's how it goes. That's how the Jews regarded themselves, frankly. So what is their status? If they're not a citizen, are they a serf? Are they a peasant? Are they a, a, a merchant? I mean, all those terms I just used, clergy, nobility, you know, all these terms are Christian or non-Jewish terms, which apply only and solely to people who are Christian. And in the Muslim countries, the people are Muslim. So, what's the status of a Jew? So, and the notion of an independent secular state where everybody has citizenship rights and is protected by the state, that didn't exist in those days. And so, if every country is a Christian country by definition in Europe, what's a Jew? And the answer is, he's the nechassim of the king. Hear what I just said? He's the property of the king. Sometimes, in some places, the Jew is the property, the nechasim of the local nobleman. That was the legal status of the Jews for century after century in Europe. It's just interesting, okay? And what that means, basically, is the Jew would say, you can't hurt me because I belong to the king. So you're hurting the king's property. Or you can't hurt me because I belong to the pope. Or I belong to the princess or the duke. Not that I'm Jewish and I have any worth myself, but I'm a property of someone else. So if you hurt me or my stuff, you're damaging the custom of the king and that's somebody didn't want to do. That's the way it was all the time. And what it really means is that from a legal theoretical perspective, the Jew in the Christian Middle Ages is like a slave. Used the, the technical term was servi comri in uh, some countries, less Latin for your your property of the Department of the Treasury, of the King's Treasury. And what it means is the king or whoever the ruler is is allowing the Jews to live here under a certain contract. And the Jews belong to that ruler with body and soul. And uh, they have a contract that the Jews give them money and stuff like that, and the king gives them protection and stuff like that. Or again, the prince or the pope or whatever the title of the ruler was. So if it's the Holy Roman Empire, the great area called the Holy Roman Empire, their idea was that the Jews are the property of the emperor. And what that for therefore means is if the Jews pay money for taxes... They paid to the emperor, not to the local ruler, but to the kaiser, the emperor. Now, this was a cause of a lot of legal fights between the emperors and the local jurisdictions, which I won't bore you with. But it just goes to show you that uh, the legal situation in Jew was a funny situation. Now, if I tell you that the Jew, well, all Jews, were slaves of the prince or the king or the nobleman, that would sound bad. But really, it wasn't. Why? If the nobleman is a smart guy, and they were, or the king, whoever, he's going to say, this: I'm not going to waste a, a good Jew just doing work that anybody can do, any peasant, any dumb, Ill, illiterate, uh, stupid peasant can do, you know, to, to plow the field or something like that. I'm going to get more money out of my Jew by leaving him alone, letting him to go into business and take a good percentage, maybe a small percentage, usually a big percentage. That's a better way of using my Jew. I'll give you an example it goes back long, long, long ago in the, uh, what do you call it, the Greek times. Uh, the uh, We all know that Alexander the Great, when he died, so he split the kingdom in, among the generals. He didn't split it, but that's what happened. So one of them was Ptolemy, who seized Egypt. So I'm talking about around the year 300 BC and so forth. And uh, by the time it's over, Ptolemy, who was the ruler of Egypt and founded a dynasty there, also, on a certain occasion, invaded Israel, and captured Jerusalem, and carried back to Egypt 100,000 Jewish captives. This is even, according to some of the meaning of the phrase that you'll go back to Mitzrayim Barneos in the, in the Torah. And these Jews were Mamish slaves working in the salt mines for X number of years. And what a bummer 100,000. Then, he died, Ptolemy I, and his son, Ptolemy II, became the king in Egypt. That's the guy who did the Septuagint again happen when they translated the Torah. So Ptolemy II, we are told in an ancient text, the letter of Aristeus, said what I just told you. i got got 100,000 Jews over here. You know, Bechlal, taken as a group, is a waste of time. It's a waste of a Jew to have them working in the salt mines. So I'm going to buy them all back. You hear what I'm saying from their owners? So there should be no hard feelings you purchase for a fair price every single Jew, and then let them alone to live in Egypt. Ah, then they're free. Yet, when I said they're free, legally they're not free. Legally they belong to me. And what he was really saying was, I'll get more money out of this Jew by letting them be free and do whatever business they go into, and even though this Jew and that Jew and the other one will end up trying to make money in this area and, and failing, but the fourth Jew or the sixth Jew or the eighth Jew... We'll become the next Michael Bloomberg, you know, and I'll be good for my economy and That model was there for the rest of history, so for example, the Jews who lived in Poland in the time that I've been speaking about the Rama and Marshaw and all that they technically legally were the property of the King of Poland, or sometimes the nobleman, and he really owned them body and soul, but it never expressed itself anyway because the, all these rulers were too intelligent. To actually go and make them slaves, like you would think of the slaves in America or something like that. But their idea rather was, now these Jews belong to us. The best thing I can do is let pure capitalism operate and let the Jew run the bar or the business or this and that and the other. And if I ever want to, not that it ever really popped up, if I ever want to, I can always you know, seize him or something like that. Once in a while they would do that, but 99% of the time, just leave the Jew alone. And out of the whole Jewish community, even though they'll have their share of beggars and losers and this, and that, and the other, like I said before, they'll all have, also have their share of Michael Bloomberg's and the Reichman's and things like that, and it'll redound to the general benefit of the economy. Now, take that idea and switch it to the 13th century in Germany. You have the Holy Roman Emperor, and he says like this, I got so and so many Jews in Germany, weren't that many, by the way, Jewish communities are very small, and 13th century you already started to see persecutions of the Jews. Uh, at the end of the 13th century, after the Maram died, there was big massacres of the Jews, but I'm not going to go into that right now. And um, what he said is, these Jews are here, and they belong to me, but I'm not doing anything about it because they're operating in Germany, they're doing business and whatever, and I'm getting the money out of it. So now let's switch to the 1280s. And for some reason, we don't know exactly why, and they are, by the way, Historians recently, it's 25, 30 years, 35 years, who have done some very amazing historical research on the subject that I'm speaking about right now, which is the 1280s and the attempt to leave Germany and things like this. I'm thinking particularly of Avram Grossman, who's a big bucky in this stuff, but Professor Toshman, and a whole bunch of other people that actually know what they're talking about, have done very, very remarkable research recently, relatively recently, on this subject. So for some reason... In the, tw- in the 1280s, there developed a movement, let's say in the Rhineland and places like that, that the Jews should leave Germany to hell with it, and move to Israel. Move to Israel. Uh, nobody knows exactly why this was. There's a lot of speculation, some of it foolish speculation, some of it very intelligent and brilliant speculation on the part of historians. But it happened. And the Maram was at the center of this, or Mayor Rottenberg, And so, the story in the old sources is that he left Germany and went to Italy, and he was waiting for the other Jews from Germany, like 100 families, maybe 200 families, which in the Middle Ages was big as far as Jewish communities are concerned. So you're talking about several thousand people, I suppose. Not that many, but, you know, by, our, by standards at that time a lot. And they'll make a mass Aliyah to Eretz row. Now, if you're talking about the 1280s, it's very interesting The Crusades were still going on, but they were in their last chapter. At the very beginning, in the late 10-hundreds and early 11-hundreds, the Christian Crusaders had conquered the whole Israel and Syria and Lebanon. But, little by little, the Muslims went back. But not all of it, just little by little, most of it. Without going into details, by the time you get to the late 1200s, 1280s, the Christians were holding on to the last one or two places in Palestine. Akko was one, and I think Tyre or Tzor was the other, if I remember correctly. Now, it's weird. Jews who moved in the 1100s and the 1200s, there to Israel, those who did, usually preferred to live in those two Christian communities rather than live in the Muslim communities. I don't know why. You ordinarily, you think the Crusaders were terrible, but not exactly. When the Crusaders very first came in in 1096, 1097, whenever it was, 1098... So they killed everybody in Israel, and all the Jews and all the Moslems. But after that, they mellowed, and many Jews, I mean, relatively speaking, not many by our standards today, but relatively speaking, many Jews in the 1100s and 1200s, who for one reason or another made Aliyah, such as Moses Maimonides, such as the Rambam, they tried to make a go of it in the Christian areas, particularly in Akko, <laughs> and not in the Moslem area. Maybe because they were used to it, that's not, not clear to me. And uh, it's it's interesting that Akko, which was the last cru- crusader uh, fortress that power, powerfully defended, uh, Akko had an interesting, very interesting and high-quality Jewish community in the 1200s. For example, I told you before, they burned all the Gemars in France in the 1240s. Well, by the tw- 1250s, late 1250s, they say that all the Chashurah in France, led by Echil of Paris, I believe, made Aliyah. That's right, they left France, and they went to uh, Akko. And they lived in Akko, which it's not that large of a city. It's very pretty if you've been there. But uh, it's not gigantic. And here you had a couple hundred uh, Cheshwa rabbis, Balitosus, the last generation of Balitosos, hanging around Akko. So it just must have been an interesting place to live in, in the 1260s and 1270s. You see, I mean, Gedoli Rishonim, and <laughs> this a uh, little town, port city, on the Mediterranean, just north of Haifa, and if you lived there in uh, around, yeah, that's right, in 1260s, and uh, you know who also showed up there? The Ramban. He ran away from Spain for a totally separate reason, and he ended up living in, in Akko for a while, because the famous Rosh Hashanah, I remember, he gave in the shoal or the yeshiva, imagine the yeshiva in Akko, of these Balitosis types, these French rabbis, Ashkenazi rabbis, uh, and the Ramban is like the guest speaker there that year. <laughs> Let me tell you something, that would be an occasion to David and that shul, <laughs> like in the year 1265, something like that, 1266, and, you know, the, uh, what should I say, the members of the synagogue or the Balitosis, <laughs> and, the, and the guest speaker is the Ramban. <laughs> like, you know, that's a movie, isn't it? That's a movie. Uh, now, It therefore seems that, you know, this was well-known to be the Matzah in Palestine. But in the 1280s, the Moslem was finally getting their final act together, and it was Mongolian rulers, and uh, the Mamelukes and this and that and the other. And in 1291, which is a little bit later than we're talking about, but only a few years later, they conquered uh, Akko, and they massacred the population. And by the way, they killed all the Jews, simply because there was a war, and when you come to a city, you just kill everybody, you know. Uh, So it would have been a bad move to move to Akko. So whatever the case is, I've seen speculation by uh, good historians that when the people, when the news of these wars were happening and were coming to uh, Europe, especially a place like that, they thought maybe it's ikvus on mishicha. You know, I mean, it sounds something like that, and the Muslims are going to take over, and uh, maybe you know they say when you see. Uh, um, um how's it go? Mashiach, you have a lot of these statements in the rabbinic literature. And all we know is, if the sources are correct, that the Muram planned to lead a big group relative to the thirteenth century to move to Eretz Yisrael and make Aliyah. This ticked off the king, the, the the Rudolf of Habsburg. Because if it's you know if he would have gone by himself and he was an old man, because like I say he was early in his sixties, so if you go just yourself with your family, that's one thing. But if you're t- planning to take a substantial population, you're taking my slaves. You get it? And if you're taking me the bees that make the honey, that's like a, a what shall I say, a, a crime or an offense against the economy of the emperor. And that's how he chose to regard it. Didn't have to. That's how he chose to regard it, and that's why he imprisoned the Maram, who had a very funny imprisonment because... Um, other, totally other the fact that he was not ransomed either he didn't want it or it didn't happen but totally aside from that uh, they gave him uh, freedom, so he didn't live in a dungeon chained to the wall like you see in some horror movie he lived in a comfortable apartment, uh, let me put it this way they did respect him which is weird for Christian knights and governments and princes in the 13th century especially a moms are like Rudolf of Habsburg nevertheless they did do so and so here's this guy who's the big rabbi an old man with a long white beard in the 1280s who was uh just before 70 and he remained in jail till he died at the age of 78 i believe it was yeah 378 um and he was allowed farm and kosher food and intercourse with his students some of his students a number of them were able to come and, and bring him books and talk to him in learning and things like that. And he actually wrote Shubis and uh, certain others, farm and Torah, in the jail, in the prison. It says so in his writings, if you read him, And so it's a strange uh, prison that he was in. But he had no liberty of movement and he was stuck. And he died there. And uh, his the, the main student who was with him that time, Tashbetz. You ever see the Sefer ta- Watch it. There's two Tashbaits. There's the Toshbates and the Toshbates. There's the Toshbates, which is the Charles and Chuvus from Spain, from Mallorca, from Reb Zemach, Duran, who was in the time of the Rivash, That's one. That's the Sephardi Toshbates. There's another Sefer called Toshbates, which is from a student of the Marmottenberg. It's one of these hero worship books. It's a very chasu, it's very well known, and it describes all the Minhogim, Hanhogos, you might say. How he cleaned his nose, how he dabbled. I'm, I'm, I'm not being funny. He talks about that, you know. How he went to the bathroom. How he uh, kept kashras, you know. Did he, did he wait between, uh, you know, cheese and and fish? All kind of things like that. That became a very wildly popular genre of literature in the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, when they totally venerated the rabbanim who who got the charisma. It's the equivalent today, not exactly, because we are modern. These art scroll books on Godolim. It's not exactly the same, but if you, if you change the, the uh, you know, uh, model for the 13th century, 14th century, it's the same thing. So he had an unusual imprisonment, and he died there. And he was buried there in the jail, in, in, in the castle. So that's the end of that. Uh, you might say that I've been speaking about a number of cases. Of strange burials recently. Um, a couple weeks ago, I talked about Zinsheim, the Yad who still is buried to this day in a Christian cemetery in Paris because of po- politics. What a bummer. Uh, last week, I did a Emmanuel Chayriki, I think, Mishnah Chasidim, who's buried in some little stupid, out of the way, small, obscure Jewish cemetery in Cento in northern Italy, nobody ever goes to, at least not that I'm aware. You know, like what a bad mazel. And then you have worse. You have the Marm Rottenberg, of all people, the greatest uh, Ashkenazic Rishon, probably of the 13th century, you know, if, or one of the two. And, I mean, he's a rebbe, he was, or he's a royal, you know, very big person, obviously, uh, Rishon. And he's buried in a don, in, 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 in a prison. in a uh, Not a prison, I'm sorry, in a castle. No, it's not in a, not a Jewish cemetery. A number of years after his death, however, and this is the story, I think he died in 1293, so this story's supposed to be uh, 13 years later, 14 years later, in 1307, I think. They, that's, I believe that's what they say. Uh, a rich Jew named Ziskan Bimfen um, paid the ransom. Uh, and they took the body out, and they buried it in a Jewish cemetery in worms. And uh, it's very famous. You can look it up online they the buried in the Jewish Cemetery Worms, the two statues, and he just he was the the, the benefactor, Zizkin Rippon was childless, and so he said, I want the Zechuz, this is very Ashkenazi, I want the Zechuz to be buried next to him when I die. And he was. And so if you go to Worms, uh, and Ari uh, Elbaum was there not long ago, Mammish like a year ago, him and his wife Heather, and uh, they saw it, and anybody can see it, I mean it's a very well-known thing. You see there are two, uh, 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 gravestone, uh, you know, gravestones side by side, and one is the Maran Rottenberg, and the other one is uh, this guy who rented him. So one, way, one guy was a Godelba Torah, and the other guy was a Godelba But he was a real firm guy, and he wanted the zechus to be buried next to him. It's a very touching story. Uh, so, in the end, the guy won in the in the sense that they got the money. Because I'm sure when he paid him off, they never liked to write about this. I'm sure he paid him plenty of money, and it's sad because uh, you know, from a certain perspective, like the Marshal said, why didn't you pay him that money 20 years ago? He could have gotten him out of jail. He wouldn't have to spend the rest of his life in, 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 in what was essentially a jail. And there's no question in my mind that if the Maram was given comfortable quarters in the jail, and kosher food, and sforim, and the ability to talk with students, all the rest of it, somebody was paying somebody. I, you know, Rudolph and these guys were a bunch of mumzers. and you know, you, you get nothing for nothing. It's all uh, you know, a payoff. So it reminds me in the 19th century with the Rishon Rebbe when he was in prison in the Czarist jails, although he escaped in the end. Every time he went there, the him raised money and bribed the, the what should I say the, the the wardens, and the Rebbe got a VIP apartment in the jail. So I'm sure, I'm sure something like that must have happened, something along those lines in the 14th century. I don't think the Maram needed a a luxury cell. He, but by him, a luxury would be to have some swarm and some people talk about it and learning and, they, and get the Shiloh. Imagine somebody comes and says, I got five Shilohs for you in the mail. And, you know, he's in the jail cell or in the in the castle is more accurate. He's looking up all the stuff and then writing out with a student who's visiting him, the chuba and maybe make an extra copy to for, you know, preservation purposes. And then the student leaves the jail and goes and, what shall I say, mails the uh, response to the Shiloh to the uh, to the person who sent the question. It's just a weird story. So there's no question that the, the Germans, the gun, got the money. But the way it actually happened was that at least at the end, he had the good fortune of being buried not in an obscure cemetery like uh, like the Mishnas Hasidim, and not in a Christian cemetery like uh, the Yad David, but in a Jewish cemetery, the cemetery of worms is an old, you know, it goes back to before Rashi's time, a very Hush Jewish cemetery that for some reason or another wasn't destroyed by the Nazis and the other. So why am I telling you all this? This happened the other day in the 4th of Adar. It's famous in history because in the 4th of Adar, uh, you know, they, they reburied him. I think that's how it goes. So it's a bittersweet tale. It's uh, They're happy that they got him out and buried him. And that's no small deal to be buried in the jewish cemetery it's a big deal um i had occasion a couple of years ago um uh, to speak here in baltimore for the um this time of the year they had the annual dinner of the what do you call it the hebrew which are mostly of these yekis in baltimore usually is and i think every year they ask another rabbi to give a speech something like that and you know hebrew is always around Zion Adar, isn't that correct because Moshe Rabbeinu, by Jewish tradition, is supposed to be the founder of the original Heber Kedisha because he took Atsmos Yosef, you know, right? That's the story. Everybody else was looking for Keseb which he told him to do, but he himself didn't look for Keseb he took Atsmos Yosef. So therefore, by tradition, Moshe is supposed to be the original uh, Heber Kedisha, and the Jewish tradition is they have a, a meal, a banquet, whatever, on Zion Adar. And I remember speaking there and making the point that my father I'm talking about me, myself and I, my father, who was in the concentration camps in the Second World War as a Kohen, but uh he buried as many people as he could simply because otherwise, uh where he was in Dachar in a crematorium, but they would just throw him in a pile, you know, something like that. And so anybody he could bury and put some earth over, at least it has a, a Jewish burial to it. Even though he's a Kohen, but at, the whole Holocaust was six million Smith was, you know. And um, here, in the case of Maram, he actually went to a real, bay, bay, uh, you know, Kevri Yisro. So it's just an interesting story, and this took place on the 4th of Adar. And uh, I see I've gone way over the top. I thought I would do this in half the time. But anyway, um, that'll take care of this for now. So that's, I would say, a famous historical incident, if not a biography that took place this past week.